Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. I am going to cover Hebrews chapter 1 as we start on the book of Hebrews, and we'll cover verses 1 through 12. I'll give you an introduction first. Who's the audience of this book? It's Hebrew Christians. They were being persecuted for their faith by unbelieving Jews. Now, in most books, you need to know the context to really understand the book, but you really need to know the context of and the audience uh, of the book of Hebrews to understand the book of Hebrews. It's, it's, it's more important than I think that, than most books in the New Testament or in the Bible. So we need to remember that. It's Hebrew Christians being persecuted for their faith by unbelieving Jews and who are tempted to go back into unbelieving Judaism. The date of the book is somewhere before AD 70. Why is that? Because the Hebrew Christians were being tempted to return to Judaism, which didn't exist as an organized religion after AD 70 when their temple and their city and their rabbinic records and all that stuff was destroyed in AD 70. After then, there was no Judaism to tempt the Jewish Christians to return to. So we know the book was written before AD 70. Its author is unknown. The author never identifies himself. Unlike most New Testament letters, there's no salutation, there's no introduction, there's no greeting, there's no blessing, there's no closing, which is a little bit unusual. Here's some characteristics of who this author is. And by the way, there's a minority of scholars who believe that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. I'm not going to take that position. I'm going to take the majority position that, that I'm going to call him the author of Hebrews because Hebrews because that includes Paul if in case he was if he were the author of Hebrews, but we don't know that for sure. So I'm just going to be safe and say the author of Hebrews. We know that this author, whoever he was, knew Timothy. In Hebrews 13:23, it says, "Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you." So the author knew Timothy. He had a personal relationship with his readers. We read in verse chapter 13, verse 19, And I especially urge you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. So, restored to you, that means he knew they were personally. Even though there's not much personal stuff in the letter, it reads more like a theological treatise, more like the book of Romans, than it does a personal lover. letter. The author never saw or knew Jesus when Jesus was on earth. We know that from Hebrews 2, 3. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. You see that the us and the those are separate groups of people. The Lord was conformed to us, that would be the author and his companions, confirmed to us by those, another group of people who heard him, in other words, who personally heard Jesus teach. So we see there that this author is not in the original group of disciples who knew Jesus. What's the theme of the book? This is very easy. It's the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior to prophets. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law of Moses. He's superior to the sacrifices which is, which are contained in the law of Moses. He's superior to the ironic priesthood that manages the sacrificial rituals included in the law of Moses. The words better, more, and greater are found about 25 times in the book. So that's easy. So we got the context of who is being written to, and we've got the theme. Why is the author trying to, to show the superiority of Christ to keep these persecuted Hebrew Christians from running back to their mother religion, Judaism? He wants to protect them. Now, what are some applications that we can get from the book of Hebrews? Well, first of all, the book guards against the universal temptation for Christians to return to the law. Here's a modern example. Torah-compliant Christianity, as it's sometimes called, 
Here, these are Christians who have these typical beliefs and practices. They observe Old Testament feasts. They attend Messianic congregations. They say Yeshua instead of Jesus. They type G asterisk D instead of G-O-D when they're trying to, to type God, when they're trying to refer to God. They follow the law of Moses, although some say they're not doing this for the sake of salvation. They're doing this just for cultural reasons. And that's all right, by the way. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Everybody's got their own culture. If you want, if you feel better being doing Jewish stuff because you're Jewish, well, fine, not a problem. The Bible never says anything bad against somebody's culture. I've been in African churches. I've been in my particular church. I was concerned about buying a gun, and but I don't do guns. I've never done a gun. A little bit weary around them, a little bit jumpy. I just, I don't, you know, I just don't do guns, but... I was considering buying one to protect myself and my wife out here in the country where I live. And it turns out that everybody, it's a small church, but everybody in church had guns. And they knew all about them. It was just part of the culture. So, you know, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's got their own culture, you know. But what is a little bit upsetting is when you see, the, I went to one of these Jewish, uh, Messianic Jewish seminars years ago. And everybody, they had this huge... Uh, festivals and I can't even remember you know, the chalupa, the wedding, the wedding banquet, and all this stuff. And it turns out I found out later that all this stuff is typical that um, the rabbis used to do all this stuff, and they were importing all this stuff into the into their Christianity. And and again, I, I didn't find that offensive because you know it was just interesting. I like Jewish culture, like I like a lot of different people's cultures. Actually, cultures are interesting. And they were very careful to say that we're not doing this for salvation's purposes. Okay, that's fine. But as soon as you start saying we got to follow the law of Moses to get saved, you are utterly condemned by the scripture. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, that's what that was all about. And sometimes to be Torah compliant, you have to wear prayer shawls, or you blow shofars, you use Hebrew words when pray, praying and so forth. That's a cultural thing. And you know, all cultures look just like the early church had to adjust to the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Hebrews, the Hebrew Jews, in Acts chapter 7, you know the story about that. There was a, there was a problem there that had to be worked out. You're always going to have these problems, and they've got to be worked out. But you don't go around saying that you got to come back to the law. And if anybody says that you do, read the book of Hebrews, and you'll see that you've just violated the Scripture, because it's very clear. No, you do not have to come back to the law to be a Christian. Let's start now in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Long ago, well, it had been about 400 years since the last prophet Malachi had spoken, and 400 years and then before then, all the way back to the times of Elijah and so forth. So God spoke. Now, normally Christian writers say it is written when they quote the Old Testament. But a Jew, speaking to a Jew, would say, God spoke through the Holy Scriptures. So this writer, who is obviously Jewish, he's a Jewish Christian, says, long ago God spoke. And what does that say about the inspiration of the Old Testament Scriptures, which Jesus never contradicted the Pharisees about, or the Sadducees? Everybody believed that. Jesus contradicted the Pharisees on a ton of other stuff, but never on the inspiration of the Scriptures, because God spoke through those Scriptures. God spoke to the Father's that would be the Jewish patriarchs, as Adam Gill says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, and the 12 tribe members, the uh, 12 tribal leaders, excuse me. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. For example, Moses was a prophet, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, at different times and in different places. Everything was not revealed to one individual prophet. Contrast this with Jesus. He revealed everything we need to know about God in the one supreme prophet. 
But other prophets spoke as through a glass darkly, if you will. They had revelation, but it wasn't about everything. It was the prophets were scattered around at different historical times and in, and in different ways they uh, they had the will of God revealed for a particular purpose. Now, what are some of the different ways they might have had the word of God revealed? For example, internal suggestions, audible voices, the Urim and Thummim. Now, the Urim and Thummim, well, let me keep going here. Dreams, visions, prophets heard from God in various ways. I mean, think about Paul. He wasn't, well, Paul actually, I think he is called a prophet in one place trying to remember uh, but at any rate he received a vision of jesus face to face actually so that's possible too so these prophets could have could have heard from god in any number of ways but the urman thurman is an interesting way let me read to you from wikipedia what is said about urim and thurman quote meaning uncertain the meaning is uncertain possibly lights and perfections but the urman thurman are elements of the hoshin the breastplate worn by the high priest attached to the ephod the ephod is the the, the the vestment that goes around the chest of the high priest and then there's a little tied with straps coming down around the shoulders this little breastplate that has the 12 beautiful stones on it and the things folded over and then you put the ermine and thumbin inside that folded over breastplate the ermine and thumbin are connected with divination in general and chloromancy in particular chloromancy is revelation by the clergy I guess I should have looked that nice word up but anyway somehow the early Jews the priest would predict what God was saying using the Urim and Thummim. And that could be like the Urim, let's be like a black stone and a white stone. You put the Urim and Thummim in somewhere and you blindly stick your hand in and pull out and says, oh, the Urim says yes and the Thummim says no. I don't know. That's something that's really always been a little bit mysterious to me. But at any rate, whatever it was, however the prophets heard any of those ways is incomplete compared to the to the revelation that Jesus had. Remember, the main theme of this book is that Jesus is superior. We go to Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Now, there's that wonderful phrase, last days, as in Gary DeMar's book, Last Days Madness. What he's referring to, of course, is that everybody says that we're in the last days whenever some political conflagration erupts or some kind of pandemic hits or whatever oh this is it it's the last days and it means the last days at the end of time that is not what it meant in the new testament here's some options he could be in the times of the messiah jesus and that's the option i prefer because it's simpler in the last days in the new covenant from the first to the second advent not the times just before the second advent why would that these days between the first and second advent of Jesus be called the last days? Because they are opposed to the times of Moses or the Old Testament economy, which was the Sinaitic system set up by the Mosaic law. And they're called last days is because it's the last days on earth before the Messiah comes. Now, of course, those days ended in the first century, and some people say it ends with the death and resurrection of Jesus in AD 30. Some people say that the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the time of Moses, was over because in AD 70, of course, the Mosaic system was still in effect on earth. I'm not going to quibble over that. For, for the Jews, the system was still in effect in AD 70. For the Christians, no, it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that ended ended the Old Testament system for them. I'm not sure which way that should go. I'm not sure it really matters, but some people take one view or take the other. But whatever view you take, it shows the last days doesn't mean the time just prior to the second coming, necessarily. Now, maybe there's a place in there where it does mean at the end of the world. I haven't found it yet. It might be in there, but usually it's not. 
Here's a quote from John Gill. It is a rule with the Jews that wherever the phrase the last days is mentioned, the days of the Messiah are designed. And they are to be understood not of the last days of the natural world, but of the Jewish world and state. Yeah, so it's the last days of Judaism that Paul is talking about here. So when he says in these last days, he means the last days of Judaism. He either means in these last days because we're because the Messiah has come, ending the Old Testament system, or we're in the last days because Jerusalem's about to go down within one generation. Not one stone's going to be left on another because the author of Hebrews, of course, would know about the Olivet Discourse that Jesus had predicted the last days of the Jewish kingdom. So whichever it is, and by the way, that's, that's option number two. I should have mentioned that first. Option number two for last days is the last days of the Mosaic economy. Clark, Adam Clark, holds this view. So the last days of the Mosaic economy is right up until AD 30, right in that area, and then Jesus takes over. Or Gill says, no, the last days is when Jesus comes, and that's when he ends the former days of the Jewish system. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown kind of takes a hybrid position. He says it's the last days of the Jewish economy, the end of the Jewish economy, and the beginning of the New Covenant, and all the way through to the end of the world, the New Covenant. Here's his quotation, quote, the rabbins, the teachers, the rabbis, the rabbis divided the whole of time into this age or world and the age to come, mentioning Hebrews 2.5 and Hebrews 6.5, which we'll get to in the future. The days of Messiah were the transition period or last part of these days in contrast to in times past. The close of the existing dispensation and beginning of the final dispensation of which Christ's second coming shall be the crowning consummation. So that quote's a little bit complicated, but basically what he's saying here is the close of the existing dispensation, meaning the Jewish dispensation, that's what the way the rabbis took it, and the beginning of the final dispensation, which is the new covenant age. And then he mentions the second coming of Christ at the end of the world will be the crown and consummation of that age, and so it covers the whole age. So, last days. Here's your choice. You can start the last days at the very end of the Mosaic economy and then take it all the way through the New Covenant era between the first and second advent. Or you could just say it starts with Jesus. Jesus is first coming and ends with the second coming. It's a minor difference. But the major thing to know is it doesn't mean the end of the world in these last days. The black helicopters are going to come and the nuclear bombs are going to fall and a 200 million man army from China is going to come and fight a big battle of Armageddon at the end of the world and all this stuff. This last day's badness that Gary DeMar so eloquently poked a hole in in his famous book. Now notice the contrast with verse 1. Let's go back to our theme here. In verse 1, the author talked about the advent of prophets who reveal certain things. Verse 1 says this long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now in verse 2 he's talking about the last days and he talks about his son in the last days he has spoken to us by his son. So you see, long ago, Old Testament age, prophets, inferior. These days, the last days, the times of the new covenant, he's spoken by his son, superior. So once again, that matches the theme that the son is superior to the prophets. The son is a messianic title. Jews would read this and recognize Jesus as the Messiah when they, if they read the book of Hebrews. Thinking it comes from Son of Man, Jesus always called himself the Son of Man, and he was quoting from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which, in which the Messiah is referred to as the Son of Man. Now, we need to realize that the term Son is an analogy with human sonship, and you can't take the analogy too far. With a human son, there was a time when the human son was not. 
But with divine son Jesus, there never was a time when Jesus was not. I mean, we don't want to get into Arian heresy here by calling Jesus a son. He's a son in, in, in that he inherits, metaphorically speaking, the genetic characteristics of his father. He is divine. Just like a son is human and the father is human, Jesus the son is divine and God the father is divine. They share a common substance, a common essence. Jesus is said to be the heir of all things. Everything the Father has, the Son has. And, of course, the Father has the whole universe. Ooh, that's superior. The Son is God. This is one thing you'll see in the book of Hebrews is that the Son is magnified so much that you realize his majesty kind of more than the emphasis on his humanity that you see in the Gospels. Now, Jesus is said to have made the world in verse 2. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him, through the Son. So Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth, just like God the Father was. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1-3, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the, and the Word, Jesus was with God, and the Word, Jesus was God. All things were created through him, through Jesus, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has not been created. So Jesus is the creator of all things, just like God the Father in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. They did it mutually, together. When the verse says, the author says that he created the world through Jesus, that means Jesus was his agent in creating the world, that implies strongly that the Son of God is God, that Jesus is the Son of God, he is divine, because it takes a divine person to create the whole world. Little Jesus, meek and mild, created the whole universe. We go to verse 3 in Hebrews 1. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now when the author says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, he's saying the sun is radiating God's glory to the world so we can see God's glory when we look at Jesus. When you see the glory of the Son, you see the glory of the Father. In John 14:9, we read this, Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You don't need to see the Father. Just look at Jesus. Because he is the radiance of God's glory. He's reflecting God's glory into the earth. John Gill says the Father and the Son are of the same nature as the Son and its ray, and that the one is not before the other and yet distinct from each other and cannot be divided or separated from one another. You look at the Son, you look at the rays of the Son. They're different, but they're the same too. Adam Clark says that the Son is the resplendent outbeaming of the essential glory of God. Nice fancy words there. The Nicene Creed calls Jesus the light of light. Or, as James Vossett Brown says, you could read that as light from light. The light of light means the light that comes from light. God is light. Jesus is light. It's interesting to me, I've always been interested in this, that light is always represented in the scripture as referring to God or Jesus. Glory. When, when Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he saw a bright light that blinded him. It's always light, light, light. And then... I've always been fascinated by Einstein's theory of relativity that says the fastest anything can move in the universe relative to something else, or well, let's put it this way, the, the absolute utmost speed that anything can attain to in the universe is the speed of light. And I said, yeah, you're going that fast, you, your all uh, spatial dimensions shrink, and time slows down. So you go the speed of light and time is zero. And basically, you've attained 
you're where God is. Now, I, that's just my thinking. I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a theologian either, so I don't know. But it just is interesting to me, this idea of light and God. And somehow God made the universe so light is the limiting, the speed of light is the limiting speed that anything can travel in the universe. Now, this term glory, Jesus is the glory of God, reflects his glory. Glory is the public manifestation of someone's or something's excellence. The root carries the idea of good opinion. Bauer, Arndt, and Gidrich, the famous lexicon, says it shows splendor, magnificence. Here's another word, another verse showing Jesus' glory. John 1.14, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, father, full of grace and truth. So the disciples saw his glory, even though it was veiled. They saw his glory right there on earth where Jesus took up his residence. Jesus is said to be the exact expression of the Father. That comes from a single Greek word that means character. He has the character of God. The Greek word originally referred to an engraving tool. This is from the commentator Kistemaker. He says, or Kistemacher, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Over time it came to the word here that means exact expression, over time, it came to refer to the image of a ruler that was stamped on a minted coin. It thus refers to a precise reproduction of the original. So even though the image is different than the original, it's still so close that it look, they look pretty close. Huh? So that's what happens when you look at Jesus. He's a different person than God the Father, but boy, he has the same divine nature. He's the exact expression of God. Nothing wrong with praying to Jesus. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus. Not You don't necessarily have to say dear God because Jesus is God. It doesn't matter. Of course, there's nothing wrong with praying to God the Father either. You're praying to God both ways. How exactly is Jesus the exact expression of God? In Jesus' actions, he expresses the actions of God. He expresses the character of God. He expresses the, well, he is the essence of God. He has the essence of God. He exhibits and has the holiness of God. The Son is equal with the Father in his divinity. Here's a scripture showing the this idea of be, the image of God or the exact Jesus having the exact expression of God, Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn means he has the premier right of inheritance of all the creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is said to sustain. In verse 3, he says, it, the author says, Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. So he not only created the world, as he says in verse 2, he's the creator of all things, but he keeps the universe going. For example, the stars in their courses, in their orb, in their movements, the planets in their orbits, it's him that keeps it going. The electrons and the protons in their orbits, it's Jesus that keeps the whole thing from falling apart. The author says in verse 3, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did he make purifications for sins? Well, of course, he died on the cross, played, paid the price for the capital crimes that mankind has committed, thus providing a ransom or a ran, uh, redemption price and allows us to be saved from my sins and purified from my sins. Now, it says that Jesus sat on the right hand of God the Father. What does that word sat mean? Does it have any significance? Yes, it does. It shows that Jesus' work is finished and complete. The Old Testament priests stood to offer their sacrifices. Let me read that in Ezekiel 44:15. But the Levitical priest descended from Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me, will approach me to serve me. They will stand before me to offer me fat and blood. The Old Testament priests stand, but Jesus sits. 
It shows that he's finished. The priestly work is over. The sacrificial work is over. It's done. No need to stand up anymore. This sitting at the right hand of God, the Father fulfills a famous psalm, Psalm 110.1. This is the one that's quoted more times in the New Testament than any other psalm. Psalm 110.1. This is the declaration of the Lord the Father to my Lord the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Father declares to the Son, sit at my right hand because your priestly work is over. Now what does it mean to be at the right hand? To sit near a king is an emblem of emblem of being on terms of familiarity and friendship. This is from Kistemacher. Hebrews 8.1. Let's look at three scriptures that show this sitting down at the right hand. Now the main point, this is Hebrews 8.1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Sat down at the right hand. Ephesians 1.20. He distributed this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him in his right hand in the heavens, because he has now all the power and authority of the Father. Romans 8.34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And by the way, I don't have the verses in front of, of me, but we know, I think it's Ephesians 2 where we see this. We are seated at the right hand of God too which shows that Jesus is sharing his authority with us. Of course, we're not God, but he puts us in a place of honor at the right hand of God. And so we need to remember that as we struggle through the vicissitudes of this life. Now, in verse 3, the author says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. I talked about exact expression, but exact expression of what? Of his nature. That means his essence, his substance if you want to use philosophical terms there, who he essentially is. That's his nature, and that Jesus shares that nature, who God's essential nature Jesus shares. The Greek word there is hypostasis, as in hypostatic union, to use that fancy theological term, referring to the union of Jesus' divinity and humanity into one hypostatic union, into one hypostasis, into one essence, God, God-like essence. Hebrews 1.4, so he became higher in rank than the angels. Well, he's already higher than the prophets, as we saw in verse 3. Now he's higher than the angels, too. He became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. Now, the word became is used because there was a time when Jesus was lower than the angels. That was when he was incarnated. Hebrews 2.9, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels. How's he made lower than the angels for a short time? Because he was came down and became a humble human being born in a manger, made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. The Son was as much man as if he were not God, and yet as much God as if he were not man. Now that's a fancy theological termination. came from some commentary somewhere that my friend Steve Ackerson quoted, and I just love it. Let me read it again. The Son was as much man as if he were not God. And yet as much God as if he were not man. He was subject to death when he was incarnated, but the angels were not subject to death. So therefore Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels because he was subject to death and the angels were not subject to death. However, he became higher in rank than the angels. He was exalted by the Father. Here's the scriptures, our previous verse. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. You can't say that about angels. 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. You can't say that about angels. After making purification for sins, angels never made purification for sins. And angels don't sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.13, now which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? None. So Jesus is higher than the angels. Now the Jews had a very high opinion of angels. Adam Clark lists some things that the Jews thought about angels. They thought that the angels were associated with God in the creation of the world. Angels were in the privy council of the Most High. Angels could be worshipped in a certain sense. You could worship them for the sake of God, not for the sake of the angels themselves. We worship you, O Michael, because you serve God. I don't know exactly how they made that distinction. Reminds me of the distinction the Roman Catholics make between venerating Mary and worshiping Mary. It gets kind of fine there. But at any rate, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they were not being idolaters, worshiping angels in the improper sense. But still, let's say this, they could venerate angels. They love to do it. So for the author of the book of Hebrews to say that Jesus was higher than the angels, that was a big deal. That was a real big deal. Now, just the word phrase just as here in this verse, verse 4, just as the name he inherited is superior to their their name. It means there's a superiority, superiority, superiority of Jesus' essence over angelic essence, and there's a superiority of Jesus' name over the name of angels. Now, why would the author mention the superiority of name? That seems kind of strange to us. We don't do that in English. Well, a name was considered to be an actual piece of the very nature of the personality it designated. When we say, I pray in the name of Jesus, that means we pray in the person of Jesus, not just in his, not just in J-E-S-U-S in English. We, we're not praying in a, with the authority of the letters of the name, we're, we're, we're praying with reference to the person of Jesus and his authority. The name, according to Bauer, Arngrich, and, uh, Bauer Arndt, and Gendrick's BAG lexicon says that the name, concerning the name, it partook in the qualities and powers of the thing named. So the name means more to us. To, to us, a name is a mere label. Back then, a name is it's, it's the essence of the thing itself that it's referring to. is it more than just a label. It actually has the qualities of the things being named. And it also carries the idea of reputation. You know, please preserve my good name. Let's give an example of this use of the word name. Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Now, these people are not just asking for contact information. They're asking for, who is this God? What is his nature? They're not just asking for his name. The name represented a lot more than just his email address. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. So God gives his essence. I exist eternally, basically. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am being. That's it. That's my essence. So that's pretty philosophical, isn't it? I am. That's who I am. But the question was, what's his name? I mean, why, would, why couldn't they just say, what's his name? And God says, I'm Yahweh. Of course, Yahweh means I am who I am, I think. But no, he, he, God gives more than just, just a personal pronoun in response to that. So name meant a lot. The Israelites would be asking here, what is the essence? What is the nature of the God who has sent Moses? Not just a mere name. And what name did Jesus inherit? Well, the son. It's the only name or title mentioned in the entire chapters. So that name, Son, has a deep meaning. And so when you see that name, Son, it is higher than Gabriel or Michael or Angel. It just is. All right, so we go on now to verse 5. 
And we see here now that in verses 5 through 14, the author will be proving that the name son is higher than the name angel. Or, I know that's confusing in English, let's just say that Jesus himself, his nature is higher than the nature of an angel. Let's go to Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Did he ever say... In other words, he's never said this. He's No angel's ever heard God say, you're my son. That's an argument from silence. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, this shows that an argument from silence actually can be a powerful argument. And I've discovered that. It's not a slam dunk to say, that's an argument from silence. That's no good. Here's an argument from silence. There's no place where God ever said to an angel, sit at my right hand. Because it's such an important thing that you would expect him to say something like that if a son was actually co-equal co in essence with the father. Which of the angels did he ever say? Now, the author is now going to prove that the name Son is superior to the name Angels by quoting various Old Testament passages. Now, the scriptures which are being quoted, I have three of them, and I'm going to give you a related scripture after these three. Psalm 2-7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's a direct quote. And Hebrews 1-5 makes a direct quote of that. This is a messianic psalm. It's applied to Jesus so we read the verse this way. I will declare the Lord, that's Yahweh, decree he said to me, the Messiah, Jesus the Son. So he the Father said to me the Son, you are my son, today I have become your father. Jesus fulfilled this psalm when he was resurrected from the dead. Acts 13, verses 32 through 33. And we, referring to Paul and his companions, ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. You are my son, today I have become your father. Now, as John Gill mentions that this expression here in Psalms, Psalms 2-7, is owned by Jewish writers, both ancient and modern, to be messianic. No question there. The only question is, is who is the Messiah? All right, that's one place where the book of Hebrews quotes from. The author of Hebrews quotes from, in verse 5, let's look at 2 Samuel 7, 14 first part of the verse. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That's a fairly direct quote because in Hebrews 1.5 the author says that putting himself in the shoes of God he says I will be his father and he will be my son. Just like 2 Samuel 7.14 says I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is quoted also in 1 Chronicles 17.13 which is parallel with 2 Samuel 7.14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. I will not take away my faithful love from him as I took it from the one who was before you. In other words, Saul came before David. He had his kingdom taken away, but Jesus' kingdom is going to last forever and ever and ever. An eternal nation, an eternal kingdom without end. Here's another place where another Old Testament scripture that the author of Hebrews quotes in chapter 1, verse 5. Psalms 89, 27. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. Now, that's not such a direct quote, but Jameson Fawcett Brown says that Paul is referring to this here because the firstborn is the son, so I will make him my firstborn son, which is the same thing as saying he will be my son. Not far off, anyway. Now, here's another scripture talking about the son being the son of God, Romans 1, 4. Who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. So Jesus is the son, as the scriptures say. But the scriptures never called angels a son. Now, this 
state of being verb become. Today I have become your father. This creates some an interesting question here. What point in time did Jesus become the Son of God? Well, instantly, you can see that sounds like Aaronism. Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is an inferior God who was created by the superior God. And he was a creator. He was created as well as being a creator. Well, that's rank heresy, of course. That issue's been settled for two millennia. So that's not what it's talking about when he said he became the Son of God, that he was created in time. It's just not. So let's look at some reasonable non-heretical options. One option is is that no time reference is indicated at all. In other words, when the author says, I have become, uh, the author cites God as saying, today I have become your father, that become is, is basically, today I am your father. No time indication at all because the reference is poetic and anthropomorphic. It's an accommodation to human language. The main point has nothing to do with time. The main point is the first person is father to the second person, the son. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett Brown, who is quoting the famous theologian Alford. Alford refers this day to the eternal generation of the son. The day in which the son was begotten by the father is an everlasting today. There never was a yesterday or past time to him, nor a tomorrow or future time. However, Jameson Fawcett Brown goes on to say, the context refers to a definite point of time, namely that of his having entered on the inheritance. So, Jameson Fawcett Brown says, the day that Jesus became the son of the fathers when he got his inheritance, and that was in time, when he was resurrected and went up to glory and received his inheritance. Well, let's look at another option. The first option being, there is no reference to time at all. I kind of saw how Jameson Fawcett Brown kind of fudged on that and said, no, nah, there's no no reference to time at all. It's eternal. However, but when he receives the inheritance, so he kind of says that that receiving the inheritance is, and his ascension is the time where Jesus became the Son of God. So that's the second option. The third option would be at Jesus' birth. Son is an incarnation title, so Son is like Jesus, a name referring to Jesus in his incarnate state. So Jesus, from the point of view of his humanity, was begotten in time. Prior to the Incarnation, he was the Eternal Word, the Logos. But now, or after he became born in the manger, he now became the Son of God. All right, that's the third option. Fourth option as to when this becoming the Son of God occurred was at the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 13, 32-33. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So there, Luke explicitly connects Jesus' resurrection with Jesus becoming the son. So that's a pretty good argument there. He became the son at the resurrection. I think I, I mentioned that as option two. That's when Jameson Fawcett Brown said that Jesus would receive the inheritance. Well, that was at the resurrection. I really shouldn't have split those two options out because they happened at the same time. So let me re-summarize that. Three options as to when Jesus became the Son of God. One, eternally. There is no reference to time. He's always been the Son. There never was a time when he was not the Son. Option number two, he became the Son at Jesus' birth at the Incarnation. Option number three, he became the Son at the resurrection of Jesus when Jesus received his inheritance. Take your pick. I favor the became the Son at Jesus' birth option. 
Now, the author says that no angel was ever called son. Well, John Gill says actually angels are called sons of God. We look at Job 1.6 and we read this. One day the sons of God, that's angels, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. But Gill says, well, that might be true, but to no angel was it ever said, this day I have begotten thee. No angel ever became seated at the right hand, co-equal with the Father. So that would be a spurious defense if some Jew might object to the author saying that angels were never given co-equality co with Jesus. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. This is a subject of infinite importance to the Christian system and of the last consequence in reference to the conviction and conversion of the Jews, for whose use this epistle was sent by God. Here is the rock on which they split. They divide... They deny this divine sonship of Jesus Christ, and their blasphemies against him and his virgin mother are too shocking to be transcribed. The certainty of the resurrection of Jesus refutes their every calumny. <laughs> In other words, is Jesus the Messiah, the Son, or is he not? That's the fundamental question that the whole human race and the Jews have to face. Clark continues in another quotation, As the Jews have ever blasphemed against the sonship of Christ, it was necessary that the apostle should adduce and make strong all his proofs, and show that this was not a new revelation, that it was that which was chiefly intended in several scriptures of the Old Testament. So, remember, this is the author of the book of Hebrews, fighting rabbinic Judaism, non-believing antichrist Judaism, trying to get Christian Jews to stay in the faith. Verse 6, Hebrews 1, we read this. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all God's angels must worship him. Well, obviously his intent here is to show that angels are inferior to Jesus because the angels are worshiping Jesus, not vice versa. Now our author here in verse 6 says, when he, God the Father, again brings his firstborn into the world, he calls Jesus his firstborn. Now here's the options as to what that means. It could mean the Son is a created being. Well, of course, that's not true. We're not Arians. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. It could be an anthropomorphic expression to show what? That Jesus has the right to inherit everything that God has. He's the firstborn. In the Old Testament, the firstborn had the right to a double portion. If you had three kids, you'd divide the estate up into four pieces, and the oldest kid would get two portions the second kid would get the third portion and the fourth, another portion, and the fourth kid would get the last portion. Here's, here's a quote from my friend Steve Ackerson. If the word firstborn, the word it, firstborn, the word, is from prototokos, used here to reinforce the son's rightful station as the appointed heir of the universe. It is a title of priority and dignity, quoting Alford. The point to be observed is that the son has the same relationship to God as does the firstborn son of an earthly father who gets the majority of the inheritance rights. It is parallel with being begotten as the son to the father. Here's what the New Bible Dictionary says. Angels are merely, merely employees, but the son is a member of the owner's family. In the Old Testament, the firstborn got a larger inheritance, a special paternal blessing, family leadership, and an honored place at mealtimes. So basically, Jesus being the firstborn is, he has the first place of honor. So that's the second option. First option, he's a created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's, of course, heretical. B, the second option is this is just an anthropomorphic expression, a metaphorical expression. The firstborn means the person who has the right to inherit and get, a, and get extra honors and privileges. Third option, it refers to Jesus' incarnation. He's the only member of the Trinity to be, to be incarnated, incarnated so in this sense jesus is the firstborn and more precisely he's the first and only born 
That's the third option. The fourth option is he's the firstborn because of the resurrection. Adam Clark says the firstborn, the resurrection is actually a second incarnation. So the term firstborn is appropriate because he is the firstborn of the new creation. I ask myself, firstborn of the new creation, that's my idea, not Clark's. That's not a bad idea, I don't think. Well, which is it? I prefer just to be safe and say it refers to Jesus as the right to have more honor. Everything the Father has, the Son has, a metaphorical expression, but it could refer to Jesus' incarnation, but I don't think so. Or to his resurrection. Well, I don't know. I'm tempted with that one, too. I don't know, but I just give you all the options there. I report, you decide. Now, the term firstborn was a term the Old Testament Jews were quite familiar with, and so the author used it. Here's an example of Old Testament scripture, Psalm 89:27. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. And in fact, this seems to be the verse that the author to the Hebrews is referring to here in chapter 1, verse 6. As John Gill says, Paul called Jesus the firstborn. Colossians 1:15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Romans 8:29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers. So he's first in the church, and he's the first in all creation. Firstborn premier honor you can't whatever the word firstborn means you can't say that about angels now paul says that god says he says well it's talking about the scripture because god speaks to the scripture when god speaks the scripture speaks he says and all god's angels must worship him well where did he god say in the scripture that all angels must worship worship him well i'm going to read you the verse and you will see that this verse has nothing to do with all angels worshiping jesus in the Masoretic text, rejoice you nations concerning his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, he will take vengeance on his adversaries, he will purify his land and his people. No mention of angels worshiping Jesus. But if you go to the Septuagint text, not the Masoretic, and, and you will see that the phrase, all angels will worship him. For example, we, Adam Clark has this quotation in which he mentions the, the Septuagint text. He says, there's been some difficulty in ascertaining the place from which the apostle quotes these words. And the difficulty is, is because in the Masoretic text, there's no mention of angels, angels not worshiping Jesus. Some suppose in Psalm 97, 7, which says, worship him, all you gods. Psalm 97, 7 reads this, all who serve carved images, those who boast in idols will be put to shame. All the gods must worship him. Well, but gods, it doesn't really say all the gods must worship him, the Messiah. It could be God the Father, so it's not clear. Clark goes on to say it is not clear that the Messiah is tended, intended in this psalm, nor are the words precisely those used here by the apostle. Our marginal references send us with great propriety to the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 32:43, which I just read to you, but no mention of angels worshiping Jesus, where the passage is found verbatim et literatum. In other words, it's a direct quote, but you have to use the Septuagint translation. There is nothing answering to the words in the present Hebrew text. The apostle undoubtedly quoted the Septuagint. The NIV note on Deuteronomy 32:43, the verse I just read to you that, has, that doesn't have the mention of angels worshiping the Messiah. The NIV note here at Deuteronomy 32:43 says this, quote, The Dead Sea Scrolls, see also Septuagint, has, quotes, adds this to the text. He will purify his land and his people, comma, and let all the angels worship him. Okay, well, there's your answer right there. 
Now, of course, there is dispute over whether Paul might be also mentioning Psalm 97.7, which I just mentioned. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown doesn't even say it's questionable. He says it's definitely Psalm 97.7, which says this. I'll read it again. All who serve carved images, those who boast in idols, will be put to all shame. Uh, to shame. All the gods must worship him. The problem is that it says gods, not angels. The Septuagint in Psalm 97.7 actually says angels uses the Greek word angel, so it, so it would be read like this in the Septuagint. All the angels worship him. Well, it does not exactly an exact quote, but it's got the same idea as all the angels worship the Messiah. Well, it doesn't matter whether it's Psalm 97.7 or the Septuagint version of De Deuteronomy 32.43 and the Septuagint. If it's the Septuagint version of Psalm 97.7 or whether it's the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 32.43, the point is, is that angels will worship the Messiah, which shows that the Messiah is superior to angels, because only God is to receive worship. Exodus 34:14. You are never to bow down to another God, because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous God. So you're not supposed to bow down to Yahweh. However, God commanded the angels to worship his son. Excuse me, you're not supposed to bow down to another God beside Yahweh, but God commanded the angels to worship his son, Worship him, it's referring to here in Hebrews, his, the Son, not God the Father, but God the Son. Therefore, the Son must be God. Again, the whole mode of operation that the author is using here, he quotes Old Testament verses talking about worship needs to be given to God and nobody else. And then he substitutes the Son in for God when you go to the New Testament. And he quotes it that way as the Son is supposed to be worshipped. So in Hebrews 1.6, when the author says all God's angels must worship him, if he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Septuagint, it would be worship God the Father. But here, all God's angels must worship him. He's talking about the Son, because that's the context. He's, he's talking about the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son. We go now to verse 7, Hebrews 1. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. This is a quote from Psalm 104.4, which says this, And making the winds his messengers, or his angels, flames of fire his servants. Angelos is the word that can either be angels or messengers. Now, notice he says makes. That means that angels are created. Of course, the sun is not created, so that makes the sun superior to the angels right there. Angel, the angels are not eternal like the sun is. Now, what does he mean when he makes the angels winds? Well, here's the options. It could be that angels direct the winds to go where God needs the winds to go. The angels are agents of God. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. I think it makes more sense to say this, and this is my idea, and I could be wrong, that Angels are like winds as they fly to do God's service. So God says, I want the wind to blow on this part of the Atlantic Ocean to bring rain to this particular place. And God says, okay, angel, go take care of it. That's being pretty scientific about it. If you want to be poetic about it, just as God makes the winds go where he wants the winds to go to accomplish his purposes in the natural world, likewise in the spiritual world, he directs the angels to go where he wants them to go to accomplish his spiritual purposes. I think that's really what he's talking about here. He makes his servants, of course those are angels, according to Hebrew parallelism, those are his angels. He makes his angels, his servants, a fiery flame. Well, lightning, flame can be lightning. It's translated both ways a lot of times in the Old Testament, flame or lightning. So it could be God makes the lightning go where he wants it to go. And just in the same way, he makes his angels go where he wants the angels to go to do his purpose. So the angels, of course, have high dignity, but they're not as high as the sun. By the way, the KGV translates angels as spirits. And about the spirits, he says, I think is the way it goes. 
because the angels, of course, are spirits. I think it's easier to, instead of messengers or spirits, just to say angels. That's what the Holman Christian Study Bible has here. And so we just got bogged down in some details. The main point of the verse is, as Adam Clark says, is that, that angels are mere servants. Well, Jesus is a son and family member. That's the point. Jesus is superior. That's the context of this first of these first 12 verses. The angels are servants. The son is to be served. Now we'll look in verses 8 and 9 and see that the superiority of the son is emphasized again as Paul, as the author continues according to his theme. Hebrews 1, 8, but to the son, that means God is still speaking. Let me go back and pick that up. Verse 7, and about the angels, he says, dot, 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 verse 8, but to the son, he says, that's what he's getting at here, but to the son, this is what God says to the son. God the Father says to the Son, quote, Your throne, God. Your throne, God. So God the Father is calling God the Son, God. Again, the point is to show that Jesus is God. He's divine. Your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Now here the author uses symbols of authority and kingship, throne and scepter. Scepter, of course, is an iron rod that they used in the ancient world. The kings would hold there as a symbol, I'm your king, kind of thing. And, of course, we know about throne. That's where kings sit. So, your throne, God, that's the Son. Your throne, Son, who are who is God, is forever and ever. Now, the scripture that the author is quoting is Psalm 45, 6, which says this, Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. That's a pretty much direct quote. No problem there. Now, it's interesting that Psalm 45.6, along with its next verse, Psalm 45.7, were originally a wedding psalm for a Jewish king. Now, the fulfillment obviously refers to the Messiah. This is not a, a mere human king that God is talking about here, that the scripture is talking about in Hebrews 1.8. It's talking about the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, not only Christians reading it to this today, but Jews reading Psalm 45, 6. And in olden days, they knew it referred to the Messiah too, as John Gill and Adam Clark point out. Even though the context was it was a wedding song, psalm for a Jewish king about to get married. Let me read that in, the, in Psalms, Psalm 45, 6 through 7. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. And there's a problem, see, because it says God, your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with all of joy more than your companions. Well, see what the problem is here. Your throne, God. God is being addressed. And then it says, therefore, God, your God. How does God be a God of himself? Well, the answer is, according to the NIV Study Bible, quote on, at Psalm 45.7, that Study Bible says that the king is representative of God. Therefore, the psalm is saying, your throne, king, who is a representative of God, the, the king is called as God. Well, now, Barnes says that God, it, the term God is used in the Septuagint. This is the rendering of the Septuagint and the Vulgate and of the versions generally. But whether they suppose the words to be addressed to the divine being or that the theocratic king is thus styled is uncertain. In other words, is this God or the king that's talking about? Well, I don't know, but I do know this. In Hebrews 1.8, it's talking about Jesus. God the Father says to the Son, Your throne, God... God is talking to Jesus, and he says, Your throne, God. God the Father talks to the second person of the Trinity and says, Your throne, God. He calls him God. And, of course, it's forever and ever an eternal throne. Now, some people try to, to avoid the, the obviously, obviously Trinitarian aspect of this verse, or at least they try to avoid the impact of the verse by translating it this way. 
God is thy throne forever and ever. Instead of God the Father saying to the Son, your throne God is forever, they say, God is your throne forever and ever. Just flip the words around a little bit and, and we come up and make it metaphorical. God says to the Son, to Jesus, I'm your throne, Jesus. I'm the one who gives you the power to be king. And so there he's not, he doesn't contradict that Jesus is God, but he doesn't explicitly say that Jesus is God by saying, your throne, comma, God, comma. Well, I looked at a bunch of translations who translated, translates it as God addressing Jesus personally as God. NESB, ASV, Amplified, Green's Literal, NIV, the New Living Bible, the, the English Revised Version, the English Standard Version, the New Century Version, the New Life Version, the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version all translated just like I've got in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. But to the Son, your throne, comma, God, is forever and ever. So let's don't weaken the impact of that verse. Go to verse 9, Hebrews 1. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is still God talking to his son. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, in other words, this is why God the Father, your God, your, Jesus the Son's God, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of joy rather than your companions. Now the scripture this is quoted from is Psalms 45, 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Now there the psalm is addressed to the king of Israel. You love righteousness, you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your, the king of Israel's God, has anointed you. But here the verse is quoted this way. It's quoted as if God the Father is talking to the king of the universe, not the king of Israel, but the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. This is why you, the Son of God, this is why God, your Son of God, God. This is why God, who is your God, this is why God, who is the Son's God, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of joy. It's clear, the Messianic reference, and it's clear in Hebrews, the reference to Jesus as being God. Now, Jesus is anointed, of course, anointing is, who gets anointed? Mediators do, prophets do, priests do, kings do. The anointing was not done with material oil, of course, it's with the Holy Spirit. Now, the oil is called the oil of joy. John Gill says this, Anciently, kings, priests, and prophets were consecrated to their several offices by anointing, and that this signified the gifts and influence of the divine spirit. All right, that's not controversial. Why, why does the author call it the oil of joy? What does the joy mean? I looked in several commentators, and it seems like that was an expression that seemed not needed explaining. That happens to me a lot. So I'm just going to speculate here. It's the oil which comes, or which creates joy because it's used at a joyful occasion when someone is anointed as prophet, priest, and king. That's my, that's my take on that. The oil which produces joy. In other words, the oil which comes out of the joy of the consecration ceremony, maybe. Somehow oil is associated with joy. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible says that Jesus is anointed rather than your companions. The NIV has above your companions. That just means in front of, instead of, in place of. And, of course, in Psalm 45, 7, that was the king gets anointed instead of all the nobles in the kingdom and all of his attendants and servants and so forth. In Hebrews 1, 9, who are the companions that don't get to get anointed? Well, that could be the other prophets, priests, or kings, because Jesus is above them now. It could be all believers who have the same Holy Spirit, but they're not Jesus. Of course, they don't have the Holy Spirit in the same measure and so forth, but they still have the Holy Spirit. Could be angels. 
this certainly fits the con fits the context because this is the angels is my view by the way the other views that it, that the companions of prophets priests or kings or maybe believers is adam clark's view i suggest maybe it means angels it certainly fits the context he's talking about angels 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 god is superior than angels and so aren't angels the companions of jesus and yet Jesus gets anointed and they don't. But at any rate, it doesn't matter. The point, the main point is, is Jesus is higher than angels. We go to Hebrews 1, 10, 11, and 12. And, again, he's quoting the scripture again. And, colon, in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like a robe. But you're the same and your years will never end. In the beginning, Lord, that's in the beginning of creation, John Gill says. The scripture that's being quoted here is Psalm 102.25. Long ago you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's a direct quote there. No problem there. Now, in the Psalm, Old Testament scripture, in Psalm 102, the you refers to God the Father. Long ago you, God the Father, established the earth. But here in Hebrews 1.10, the you is Jesus, because, again, we're going back to God says to you. Let me go back and pick that verse up. That's back in verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. Well, maybe it's not verse 7 either. I think it's verse 6. Let me find it. It's easy to lose the context. It's so far of the way, far away. It says, when he again brings his firstborn into the world, in verse 6, he says, and then he gives a scripture quotation, and then in verse 7, about the angels, he says, another scripture quotation. Then we go to verse 8, but to the Son implied, he says, another scripture verse. And that does, what God says to the Son is continued in verse 9. And then when he gets to verse 10, he says, and implied, he says again. So it's God the Father saying, in the beginning, Lord. Well, if God is saying something to the Lord, that the Lord has to be the Son. And so, again, the Lord is established for God the Father is the one who establishes the earth. So, once again, we see the scheme of the author. Quote Old Testament verses showing that God is God and then substitute for God, Jesus, and show that Jesus the Messiah is God too. So, in the beginning, Lord Jesus, you established the earth. Now, here are three verses that are portions of Psalm 102 that are not quoted by the author of Hebrews but are in the same psalm. Psalm 102.1, the Lord Yahweh hear my prayer. Psalm 102.12, but you, Lord Yahweh, are enthroned forever. And then he calls God El in Psalm 102. Psalm 102.24, but I say my God, that's El, another word for God, but do not take me in the middle of my life. So all the way through Psalm 102, it's obviously that the psalmist is addressing the Father. But now, when we see the psalm quoted in verse 10, in one portion of it, verse 25, quoted directly, you will see the you that is referring to as the one who is establishing the earth is not God the Father, but it's God the Son. Again, to show that the Son is equal to the Father. Now, when the author says that Jesus established the earth, he's repeating what he said in verse 2 in Hebrews 1. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him, through the Son. There, Jesus is an agent of God the Father. Here, it's straight out. You established the earth. It's not even mentioned that he's an agent of God the Father. He did it. He established the earth. Jesus did. Now, he says in verse 11 that all the works of your hands and the heavens will perish. In other words, the physical universe will perish. That means it's not going to be here forever, folks. It's going to perish. 
Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27. This is who the author of Hebrews is referring to. They, the created universe, will perish. But you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Physical universe is never meant to be eternal. But you remain. That means Jesus is eternal. We know that because we can look at the verse 12 at the end of it. It says, your years will never end. There's no end. That means it's eternal at least eternal in the forward sense of the word. Of course, other verses show that he was eternal from the beginning also. Now, you notice, continuing the metaphor here, comparing the universe with clothes, when garments are old, they're rolled or folded up. Well, that's going to happen to the universe. God's going to fold it up. So this is it. And then it says in verse 12, the universe will be changed. Now, I think that's interesting because there's some implications here as far as a new physical creation for Christians. they got a place to live. I mean, when we roll up our old clothes stash them away we buy new clothes and put on new clothes so we change our clothes and that word change is actually used in verse 12 the they the clothes which symbolizes the natural creation will be changed like a robe now we read in romans 8 21 22 this the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of god's children for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now so the world is going to be changed, it's going to be redeemed from its corruption, it's going to be freed from its bondage to sin, the bondage of corruption is going to be gone, and we're going to have a glorious freedom, and then, oh, excuse me, nature is going to have the same glorious freedom that God's children have. The world which has been groaning because of sin, groaning with labor pains, it's going to be free from sin, it's going to be the way God meant it to be. I can hardly imagine what that's going to be like. It's going to be wonderful. You don't have to worry about fire ants anymore, snakes. I live in the country. And I am on a war to the death with fire ants. They won't be in heaven. John Gill says this, not as to the substance of them, in other words, the physical universe will not be changed substantially, but as to the quality of them, of the physical elements. The quality will change. The present form and fashion of them shall pass away. The curse will be removed from them, and they will be renewed and purified, but the substance of them will continue. Otherwise, there will be no place, either for the righteous or the wicked. In other words, the world won't perish. It will just be changed. So when God says in verse 11, Hebrews 1, they, the physical elements of the universe, will perish, what it means is the old form of them will perish. There will be a new form because the old form will be changed like a robe is changed. You know, I know a lot of theologians these days are emphasizing that we don't float around into the, in the heavens like angel like airy spirits with no place to live and that is the impression you get from medieval art and just an impression that has been around for a long time it's not true we're going to be living on the earth folks a redeemed earth that's going to be called heaven and of course the spiritual universe i'm sure will be joined to it somehow so the angels will be a part of it and you know i don't know how all that's going to work of course but it's going to be great jesus said hey in my house i prepare for you many mansions Nice little metaphor there talking about how great it's going to be in heaven when we get there. As we arrive safely there, as Paul said it in one of his letters, I think it was to Timothy, we'll get there safely. We now move to verse 13, Hebrews 1. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110.1. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
This is the rec- this is David speaking. He says, "This is the rec- declaration of the Lord God the Father to my Lord." And that, and we assume that this is a messianic reference to the Messiah. He might not have known it was Jesus, but it was the Messiah. So the author of Hebrews is assuming Yahweh has called the Son the Messiah. God didn't say God the Father didn't say to the angels, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." But the implication is, but He has said it to the Messiah, "Sit at my right hand." He has said it to the Son of God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, footstool is a picture. Well, let me back up a minute. Matthew also quotes this psalm, Matthew twenty-two forty-four. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord God, the Father declared to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand. This actually is the most quoted verse of the New Testament. Footstool, till I make your enemies your footstool. It's interesting. Jesus is at the right hand of God with a position of all power. He's ascended there. He's beating the demons on the cross, but his enemies are not quite defeated yet until I make your enemies your footstool. That's because we've got to roll them up. We're mopping up operations down here on the earth. It's not done yet. But when it is done, Jesus' enemies and the church's enemies will be a footstool. This is a picture of utter defeat. It represented a military practice. A victorious king or general would place his foot on the neck of a conquered foe. Here's an example of that in Joshua 10:24. When they had brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the neck of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. Yes, sir, buddy. All the demons of hell and all those who serve him on this earth are going to have God's foot on their necks. Here's another example of the idea of the conquering general, Jesus, having his foot on the necks of his enemies. 1 Corinthians 15:25 through 28 for he, that's Jesus, must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. And that includes death. Conquered, totally conquered. Jesus never said that. To which of the angels has he ever said? Has God the Father ever said? Nobody. No angel has ever had that said to him. The Son is superior to angels. Now we go to last, the last verse of chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Notice the serve. The author's drawing a contrast in the previous verse, verse 13. The son puts his foot on the necks of those who he has conquered. But the angels, by contrast, they nearly go out and serve. That's an honorable thing. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing that they are serving, but they're not putting their feet on the necks of their enemies because in God's hierarchy, angels are inferior to the son. So we have a contrast, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says, a contrast between a sitting son and a serving angel who stands. Luke 1.19 says this, The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So the angels stand, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. The angels are inferior to the Son. Now, of course, the incidental point is the point that everybody remembers because people love to take scriptures out of context. and nothing wrong with the idea is, is that Angels are ministering spirits who serve those who are going to inherit salvation. So in some way, which I don't understand, God the Father uses angels to help us out down here. And that's great. But that's not the main point of the verse. The main point is, is they're just serving. Jesus is putting his feet on the necks of enemies, conquering our enemies. With that encouraging thought, we close chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. In our next audio, chapter 2, we'll take up a warning that the author gives against the Hebrew Christians of not neglecting their salvation. That fits the theme of not leaving the Jewish, the Christian faith for the Jewish religion again. We'll also take up again, continue with this theme that Jesus is superior to the angels. I hope you 
Stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.